0: Howdy, folks, and welcome aboard the podcast once again. A quick introduction before we get started today, mentioning that uh, if you haven't heard, the podcast is now sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. So if you subscribe at the $10 tier, you'll get a digital subscription to the website. And for folks who have already subscribed at that, level, by the way. Uh, we are currently working on the little coupon system in the back end, and those should be going out next week, uh, hopefully early next week. And finally, as usual, we uh, would very much appreciate any reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, or wherever else you may listen to podcasts. So let's uh, start our episode with Adam Kotzko right now.
1: Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek.
0: And I'm Ryan Cooper. Here to welcome to the podcast, Adam Kotzko, who is a professor in the Scheimer Great Book School at North Central College outside of Chicago, and author of Neoliberalism's Demons. And also the reason we uh, wanted to have you on, Adam, uh, a, a, a legit, serious scholar on Agamben, who I may be pronouncing his his name uh, incorrectly, but an Italian philosopher gentleman um, who uh, uh, to 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 my uninformed uh, opinion appears to have gone banana nut butters insane uh, during the pandemic. And so we wanted to sort of, you know, we haven't done one of these episodes in a while Um about, you know, like some kind of heavy duty philosophy stuff. But we thought this would be kind of interesting to get, uh, you know, kind of into the weeds a little bit and, and sort of, uh, talk about, um, you know, philosophy and, uh, you know, continental philosophy, Foucault and all of that, Heidegger, all the, all the champs, all the great, uh, <laughs> folks that we, we know and love. And so, Adam, can you kick us off a little bit, you know, pretend like you're talking to a child. Who is this Agamben fellow? Um, And like, what are his uh, like, like a sort of capsule summary? Uh, I know having read a little bit of your books on Agamben that it gets really fucking complicated, but like kind of give us just a little bit of flavor of, you know, his kind of general approach uh, uh, in terms of, you know, thinking scholarship and so on.
1: Sure. Yeah. That's an easy question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's only, it's only uh a complicated pitch. 221 pages in front of me right here. Very, uh, nuanced, intricate, uh, study. So no need to try to sum up this book that you published a couple of years ago in 90 seconds or something. Um, but maybe just welcome the audience to why, uh, Giorgio Agamben is such a, a famous contemporary philosopher, perhaps. I think
2: basically what many great philosophers do is they recognize a pattern that seems to repeat itself um, in different fields of thought and different like parts of our lives and different parts of nature even. And I think that Agamben noticed a pattern that in whatever field you're thinking about, chances are that there's going to be some element that is supposed to be excluded completely. That, like, to define the field that you're in, you need to exclude this thing. But it turns out that excluding it doesn't mean that it's simply outside or irrelevant or we never talk about it again. That this act of excluding requires, it, requires two things. First of all, that it should be regarded as, like, lower or abject or bad in some way as kind of, um, like, almost as though it deserves to be excluded, Um, but that at the same time it's still considered, like, foundational. So that he notices that in a lot of fields there's a a simultaneous, like, cast something out, um, deride it, get rid of it, but also make that foundational to what's going on supposedly in the good part of the field. And he found this going on in a lot of more abstract places, like in the structure of language or in the structure of like Western ontology, like all of these kind of uh, big, bold claims that, that he's made. Um, but the one that made him most famous when he said, this is what happens in politics, too, that the biggest decision you're making when you're founding a political order is who does not belong to it. And it turns out that those people are not just excluded and derided and kind of subjected, but that they're foundational, um, that actually creating this class of subhuman people is really what politics does at the end of the day.
1: And so, the you know, famously, the kind of paradigmatic example of the camp, um, you know, the, the, the Nazi camps, um, you know, which of course were treated by Arendt as uh, the epitome of totalitarianism. It seems that Agamben takes that and makes it paradigmatic of modern politics and and, and just what what most people would think uh, would not apply to liberal constitutional regimes. But there, there's a move he makes. Is, is is that right? Where where this kind of order based on, uh, as you say, the exclusion and and the the kind of making subhuman. Um th- this is something that 's actually built into to the orders we would think of as normal orders today right absolutely um that th- it 's not as though
2: um like normal liberal democracies are some qualitatively different thing than a totalitarian society. He thinks that in a way like it's it's always ready to turn into a concentration camp like um situation and i 'm sure he would acknowledge that the concentration camps themselves like the kind of industrial production of like mass extermination like that was an exceptional situation hopefully it will never happen quite like that again but the 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 basic move of like excluding these people putting them over here and then creating this space where there's just an unlimited amount of power and violence that can be exercised on these people that that's something that states he thinks, continue to do all the time. And I think there's a great case to be made for it. Like his book um, where he uh, most details this theory uh, is called Homo Soccer. It's a Latin phrase uh, meaning the sacred man. And like sacred ironically means that he's actually cast out, not that he's like highly valued. Um, and he said that basically like the, the inmates in the concentration camp had this, this paradoxical status of being foundationally excluded. Um, but he think it came out and was most discussed and most popular during the War on Terror when we had things like Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib, CIA, black sites, where the Bush administration claimed it could just designate somebody as an enemy combatant, and then all bets were off. Anything could happen to that person. And far from like that being over once the Bush administration was over um in a way, the Obama administration like radicalized it and said, "We have flying killer robots, and anybody on earth can be subjected to this violence at our sole discretion and- Everybody is potentially just like killable with no retaliation with no legal consequences
1: right and and this is something that you know as you detail in your in your book even um prior to the pandemic this seemed to be a bit prophetic and and uh although there there's some interesting quotes about timeliness and untimeliness uh regarding philosophers and and uh and such there seemed to be a, an amazing way that the work of agamben who as you'd as you've written about uh traces all kinds of um you know, philological and philosophical and, and poetic accounts. Uh, so it's a fu- it's a f- interesting philosopher to be timely or to to have bearing on a contemporary time. But nonetheless, it seemed like he really was speaking to our time, um, specifically with the idea that uh, you know to draw on Schmidt a little bit. Uh, the state of emergency can be perpetual because the sovereign is is he who decides on the exception, and, and if. <laughs> If emergency, uh, becomes, you know, the regular way of ruling or, or ruling as if everything's an emergency, well, then that permits all these things, um, you know, to, to occur, right? And so, so maybe you could talk about that. Cause I think this is an important setup for why his speaking out during the pandemic, the emergency of the global, you know, pandemic, um, might reveal both why people were, were suddenly listening to to this famous philosopher and also uh, why we had the result we did. Um, so yeah, so maybe you can speak a little to how his, his uh, theorizing about, um, you know, uh, sovereignty and emergency uh, kind of sets us up for the pandemic.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, often when we say like, there's an emergency, we need to solve it, we need to like, do whatever it takes to like, get things back to normal, like that can sound life-affirming and good, right? Like um, this is a positive goal that we're trying to seek. And Agamben says that actually every time an emergency is declared, that's a situation where this kind of um, status of just infinite exposure to violence, what he calls bare life, that that the two go together that at the time when the sovereign, the political leader who has the power to decide this, that by deciding that it's a state of emergency and that they can do whatever is necessary, they're necessarily also creating a class of people who are going to be bare life, who are going to be disposable or killable. Um, And I think that you can see that in, um, you know, that's obviously the goal of the emergency declarations under the Nazi regime. Like, Hitler was put into power into this position that had um, the power to declare an emergency, um, and he took full advantage of this and, like, suspended most of the German constitution, and that's, like, the legal basis allowing the concentration camps to happen. I mean, one of the disturbing things about Nazi Germany is that, in that sense, everything that happened in the concentration camps was perfectly legal. It all happened according to the constitution. Um, and I think it's harder to make the case for the Bush administration, although obviously it seems as though everybody's decided that it was all cool and fine.
1: Um, but I think, did you know he paints adorable portraits? I didn't know. I'm not sure if you, you learned about this. This might change your view of history.
2: Yeah, I I did. He's he's really, yeah, he has layers. I think that. I mean, the one with the dog that's looking in at the White House, like, that's genuinely clever. I, I got to hand it to him on that one. Um, you know, Hitler also painted. Yeah. It's an interesting parallel,
1: but <laughs> maybe they'd have something to talk no. about. But, um, uh, men contain multitudes, Adam. It's, it's yeah, true. Uh, I, I think that,
2: like, in the the Nazi case, I think we're primed to say, like, obviously that was opportunistic. No emergency really existed that required the measures that were actually taken. Um, Like, it was an abuse of power. But I think that you could say the same thing for 9-11, too. Like, you could say that you wake up the morning after 9-11, you'd say, a terrible crime has been committed. We're going to use normal law enforcement officers to track down the people who planned this. If they're not all dead, obviously it was a suicide attack. And we're going to try our best to dig every, dig up all the bodies and, like, uh, clean up this, this terrible thing and rebuild and move on. Declaring a state of emergency and a state of war in response to this was a choice. And we know, in retrospect, that it was a terribly destructive choice that led to our entire political class basically going insane and um, opting for this, like attacking a completely unrelated country with horrible consequences that are still going on now. And so I think that when Agamben is thinking about declarations of emergency and exceptional powers, since he's using Nazi Germany as his paradigm and since he's using the Bush administration as his paradigm, he's always going to be thinking, wait a minute, have you trumped up yeah. these charges? Have you have you made up this situation? Are you just trying to shore up your own power? Because, for instance, George W. Bush lost the election, but got in on a technicality. For his first year in office, everybody thought he was a bumbling fool and an idiot who probably wasn't up to the task. And 9-11 could have been the turning point where everybody was like, man, this happened on his watch. We were totally right that he Was not up to the task, like the worst possible thing happened when he was president, like get rid of him. But instead, through this declaration of emergency and war and everything like that, his popularity just exponentially increased um, in kind of a horrific way to watch unfold in real time, you know.
1: And we went along with it with the security theater. I mean, do, do you remember? Our, our listeners who are younger might not remember this, but uh, there used to be different colors to just be more scared. That you would we would suddenly get like a a, a orange instead of yellow or something, and it'd be like just general fear should escalate for everyone. I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> to just you should just be more afraid. And um, and I don't know about you, but to this day, I feel much safer when I take off my shoes uh, in line at the airport. I don't know. Uh, have you ever thought about the fact that, um, when they take your water out of your hand and throw it in the wastebasket, they're throwing what potentially could be a bomb right next to the line of people, uh, right there. And I mean, so, so if they're really scared, it just, it's totally great. It makes no sense. Um, it's theater, right? So you can see how, how Agamben is, is saying, okay, people have internalized this fear and they're subvert, you know, they're being manipulated by the, by the state and, and they're, they're even doing these crazy rituals, um, so, so you know, yeah,
0: yeah, in that sense, yeah, you know, you see, <clears throat> you see where he's coming from, and you you see how his analysis can 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 be appropriate in certain contexts, but I think this is a good point to start talking about vaccines, um, and what the fuck he's been up to you know so so you have you've been like in the trenches there with uh adam like like actually talking to the fellow uh you know so can you tell us like what he's been writing and saying about vaccines and vaccine mandates in particular
2: yeah i, I don't want to exaggerate the extent to which we've been in dialogue about this like um <laughs>
1: You're best friends from uh, from childhood, right? You played hide and go seek together. Uh, but, but I've met him in person one time, but um,
0: you've emailed with him like previously before, right? <laughs> right yeah. In all
1: seriousness, no. You're a translator and a scholar, and, and right, of yes, course, yes. you know, um,
2: yeah, yeah. We I I'm translating currently <laughs> the my tenth book of his. I'm in the middle of it right now, um, so I haven't like canceled him from my own personal life. Um, <laughs> And we did email a little bit because he asked me if I could translate these pieces and I kind of like skimmed through them in Italian and I'm like, yeah, whatever. And then like, as I'm translating it and like, I, I like more you know, studying in detail. I'm like, Oh no. And <laughs> I, there was one where I convinced him to let me cut a line where he said that people are like Eichmann if they're going along with the pandemic, um, the pandemic restrictions. And then like subsequently, like I, I think I did maybe three or four total. And then he probably got the, the idea that I was very uncomfortable with it. and just stopped asking me to do it. Um, and we've like exchanged friendly emails since then. Um, but, uh, and we were never uh, personally close and I never knew if he was going to respond to one of my emails because he's kind of an older man who's not accustomed to keep up with his emails. It seems like, Um, But, okay, that being said, that irrelevant personal information being said, (laughs) basically, so when the first, like, emergency declaration was made surrounding um, COVID, the coronavirus at the time... he was looking back at all of his past political analyses about these like opportunistic fake emergencies that are only meant to victimize people and control people. And he's like, "That must be what's happening now." And he repeatedly seemed to be drawn to this kind of rhetoric that the threat of COVID was exaggerated. Um he would often, like, if pressed on it, he would say, well, you know, I'm no scientist. I'm just talking about the political and ethical consequences here. I'm not really here to adjudicate the the reality of the disease. But it seems like there was something about the logic of his position that required him and constantly drew him to minimize and say that um, the means are ineffective. Like, and also a tendency to exaggerate the burden and the uniqueness of the measures. I believe that Italy had the most severe restrictions of any European country. Um, And to that extent, I could see him saying, like, what is going on? Why are we acting like this and like Austria and whoever is not doing it? Um, But it wasn't as severe as China, for instance, or wasn't as... Um, you know, as, as other countries. Um, but he just kept going back and back to, like, if you offer your classes online, it's, a, it, it's kind of like as though you're cooperating with fascism, which is trying to undermine the education system, or, like, these tools that the state has developed to control us by getting us to stay home all the time <laughs> are not tools that they'll give up easily. When really we know that every country in the Western world was falling all over itself to get rid of these tools of control because it interfered with the economy. Um, Yeah, it just seems like, to me, he got fixated on one particular analysis of the situation and was not receptive to new information after that point. We've all done that, right? Maybe not as consequentially, though. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> no, it's interesting because, and, and it's worth digging into uh, how much, because as, as you write in your piece, what happened to Giorgio Agamben um, for Slate, uh, this could be a philosopher who is misapplying his own work, perhaps, uh, or it could be this is indeed a um, a faithful application of his work, uh, which might make us want to think about if there are you know, blind spots or, or dangers uh, in some of the the theorizing, right? Um, you know, Ryan loves loves thinking about Foucault, so we could bring up Foucault and and <laughs> biopower and biopolitics here. Um, you know, as you kind of note, Ag- Agamben didn't fail in, in in all of his work to notice capitalism, right? Uh, especially in was it The Kingdom and the Glory that he, he talks about the economy, is right? Um, so so it's not like he he is uh, unaware. Of some of the problems of capitalism, um, although you detail about his kind of pre-political period in your in your latest book uh, on his trajectory philosophically, how um, you know he consciously chose to avoid politics for a while because of the what he saw as you know like Arendt the failures of both capitalism and communism. Um, so, so maybe we can investigate, you know, some of the theoretical reasons uh, besides the similarity to the to the Bush years and the state of emergency here. Uh, is there a problem in biopower, biopolitics, or some of the theorizing that misses the problems of capitalism that focuses too much on the state and what the state's up to? Um, or, or how, how would you think about about that? About some some of the possible um, interpretations of whether this blind spot. Reveal something about his his theories and and his works more broadly.
2: Yeah, I think that um, one thing I say in the piece is that I was disappointed that the analysis of capitalism that had started to develop with the kingdom of the glory just didn't show up in any of these analyses. Like, I even emailed him to say, like, what? where is this? Where is capitalism in this? Nudge, like, nudge. yeah. And he went on to say, like, well, the state of emergency has totally overruled capitalism at this point. And I think that, for me, the stuff that started with the kingdom of the glory, like, that's the stuff that I mainly was, like, translating. That's, like, uh, my uh, PhD is in theology, and, and that was when he was dealing more with theology um, and the history of Christian thought and that kind of thing. Um, and so, like, that is, like, to me, the classical period of god. But I know for most people, his work in the 90s, like, on the pol- the political stuff, like, that was the more popular and more widely known. But, like, I was like, okay, he's evolved into a more kind of sophisticated position. Um, he's bringing in more of social life. It's not just all about the state and all about, like, the- these extreme situations. He's also analyzing, like our everyday activities in the economy and stuff like that. And in my book, I kind of show how there was like a struggle to integrate these like kind of larger scale analyses into the scheme of his original project. And now the fact that he was able to cast those aside so easily, as though they never happened, as though he had never written anything since homo soccer and state of exception and that all of this stuff had just it was not relevant at all i wondered like is there this kind of like fissure in his work has he not really integrated this stuff um in the way that i thought he did um but to me that i mean every thinker who has a, a lengthy career and is trying to like hold different threads together over the course of decades, you know, obviously things are going to shift and change. But um, I found it disappointing that after he had kind of taken the analysis of bear life and sovereignty and expanded it to such a greater degree, like if you look at the original book, Homo Soccer, this is like a 150-page book, I want to say. It's a nice, compact, attractive volume, you know, suitable for...
1: His books are often adorable. Yeah, nice they're little just little tiny, cute, cute things. They're, yeah,
2: they're very <laughs> desirable objects. Um, and he put together like Homo Soccer was the first of a series that had like uh, I believe nine nine books in it total. And so he put them all out in one big giant thing, and it's like over a thousand pages. It's like a dictionary that you're slamming down. And he decides, okay, a pandemic has occurred. I wrote this whole thousand-page dictionary-like book. What if I just only thought about those first 150 pages, though? Like, what if I just stuck right in there? And that, to me, was a disappointment.
0: And that, I mean, this is kind of, you know, maybe the somewhat awkward question. But in an age of, like, gerontocracy, do you you think that Agamben (laughs) has just kind of lost a step, you know? Like, has he just become brittle in his thinking? Or do you or do you think that like this, frankly, paranoid and ridiculous position about vaccines and vaccine mandates uh, emerges, you know, naturally from the sort of like core tenets of his uh, thinking? Or some combination thereof.
1: Yeah, because look, you know, Jean-Luc Nancy mentions how back in the day he told him not to get heart surgery and he would be dead if he listened to him. So, I, you know, I think the point about the state and the fear of the state and, and their power combined with making health public health, there's something there that, that especially for Agamben is, is always to be scared of, you know, when when medicine is kind of combined with state power or something like that. What do you, I don't know. Yeah.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, you can see where he's coming from. There's a lot of, like, terrible examples of state power and medicine being combined. Like, in the U.S., there's, like, forced sterilization of people. There's, like, um, you know, experimentation of people without their knowledge or consent. Like, um, and he seems to evoke the specter of some of that with the vaccination um, that there's a, a one of his blog post where he compares us all to lemmings that we're about to walk off the cliff with this like experimental vaccine and who knows what could happen, right? Like this could be yet another, um, experiment. And
0: if, if only we had a randomly controlled trial to see if it worked or not yeah before it actually was distributed in a wide.
2: Yeah. That, that was a real <laughs> oversight. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. It, it does seem like he always had a kind of distrust of medicine and there is kind of, this is something that I'm not as, as expert in, but there does seem to be within a kind of Italian intellectual um, trajectory. There's like a greater skepticism of medicine maybe than in other countries. Um, I'm not, I can't really fully substantiate that.
0: I mean, it reminds me like, like this whole kind of general, you know, the thrust of it, like, he sounds like Robbie Suave. He sounds like Reason Magazine. He sounds like Glenn Greenwald. Like you're sort of <coughs> dipshit libertarian. You know, sort of like if the government do does it, that's bad by definition. And like, regardless, you know, sort of folding in, you know, the 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 concentration camp with Guantanamo Bay with like you know, free milk for babies, you know, like, like this, like this, if the state does it, it's bad by definition without actually looking at what the state is doing and getting some sort of technical literacy specifically about like a fucking like biological phenomenon to see if the, the, the thing about the vaccine, you know, does it work? Does it actually save your fucking life? If you're an old, you know, dude, um, you know, he, it reminds me of this, a Washington Post sort of soft profile of this guy who is a, a master cellist uh, in Italy. Um, You know, maybe it's, maybe this isn't a coincidence, you know, another one of these Italian uh, medicine skeptics, Uh, you know, it was just like, like the state was clamping down on him. It was like you can't get on the train. You can't go into restaurants. You can't do this. You can't do that unless you get the vaccine. We're set, we're telling you, your your life is not going to be normal until you get the vaccine. And it was this sort of like, you know, it was it was intended to be kind of a oh geez, what are we giving up? And and, and you're thinking, to your, I'm thinking to myself, me being, you know, maybe a little bit finding my inner linen, kind of being like, ha, you stupid fuck, like like. I, you know, felt a little bit of, you know, sort of glee, just like, like force, like somebody come in and save this dumbass's life, you know, so that he can keep playing the cello for another years, another 10 years instead of dying of COVID, you know, that like, like a failure to sort of examine, you know, and so, and so. My question is, after ranting like a crazy person for a few minutes, like, to what extent is there just a sort of dim-witted libertarianism uh, present in this sort of like continental philosophy where you're just sort of like the state has got all these complicated ways where they force people?
1: How is power and freedom construed in in contrast to, say, libertarianism, for example?
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that's a... That's another area where I feel like Agamemnon is really falling down on the job because he's like critiquing that um, our entire power structure is like this death dealing kind of um, falsifying structure, and he's like, we need to we need to have a totally different way of thinking about life. But it seems like uh, when push comes to th- to shove, in these analyses. He's saying, like, we just need to get back to kind of our normal liberal existence, um, which previously he thought was going to naturally flip over and become a concentration camp at any time anyway. And it's just this kind of bizarre come down of, like, a lot of the stuff that he talks about in terms of, like, what the alternative should be. Like, it's very difficult to understand what it would even look like or how you would practice it. And he's trying to push our thought and our imagination, like, beyond what we can immediately think of, you know. And that's really cool and invigorating. But then, like, for something like, what if the state gave out a life-saving vaccine (laughs) that at most costs you one day of feeling kind of sick, and then you're, like, good to go... Like, that just doesn't, that just isn't on the radar. Um, and like, I remember once I was, um, in, you know, some academic setting and we were talking about Agamben and one of my colleagues said, so, you know, Agamben says that we need to rethink our relationship to work. What would he think of a 30 hour work week? Would that be like an Agambenian policy? And it feels like, no, it wouldn't be radical enough. It wouldn't go far enough. It wouldn't be enough of a reimagination. But like, also, maybe he should be in favor of that. Like, <laughs> like to, to some extent, maybe these like high flown observations can be a kind of alibi for, for not really having a practical program.
1: Yeah. I mean, maybe we need to talk to Agamben about non-reformist reforms. Like, uh, you know, he's not in the Marxist tradition, but uh, the Marxists have their own issues with, you know, not having recipes for kitchens of the future and such. And it would have been fine, right, to say that the kind of philosophical work I do, I want to stay out of, um, you know, contemporary policy debates. Um, that would have been fine, right? Um, leave it for other people, uh, and you know, you know, Hegel's uh, you know, writing that the owl of, of Minerva only takes flight uh, dusk and so forth. So maybe philosophy isn't equipped to comment uh, at the moment. But then he does seem especially. So this is the, this would be far less strange if he wasn't already prophetic about certain politics of our day, and if he didn't want to blog, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs>
0: the man can't stop posting.
1: <laughs> um, but I. I, I do think there is something about the kind of – I mean, is it fair to say that there's like philosophical anarchism there that um, perhaps misunderstands fundamentally the role of capitalism uh, in our – because like to, to miss the pandemic problem is to miss how capitalism is benefiting uh, from taking away the state's restrictions as quickly as possible. To getting people to want to like – you know, be happy with throwing themselves into dangerous workplaces and so forth. And, 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 you know, the essential workers being valorized and so forth. Um, do you think that oversight is, is idiosyncratic to, to Agamben, or do you think we can make some broader generalizations about, um, you know, whether it's the or Foucault or, or other theorists in his kind of, um, sphere of influence? who are focused so much on, on state power or power otherwise uh, than, than power and the mode of capitalist production.
2: Yeah, I do think that there's a kind of strain of continental philosophy, um, like Foucault and Agabin would belong to this, and probably Arendt and others, um, like kind of who came up in this post-war world, uh, the Cold War world, and I think I understand the desire to carve out a space other than Marxism in the Cold War context, because as soon as you say that you're a Marxist, suddenly you're opening up this whole can of worms about what about the real existing socialist economies, like, do you advocate them? like what you know like there's just this whole this whole thing over here that you're trying to dodge. Right. And I mean, obviously I don't think that the Soviet union provides a lot of good models for us today, for instance. And like a lot <laughs> yeah. of the time that like,
0: shame the unbeliever. No, just, yeah. just kidding. Just kidding.
2: Like, like the time that Jean Paul Sartre spent trying to like figure out his exact relationship to the Soviet union, like that was wasted time. Like that was not an intellectually productive thing. Yeah. Um, but then like the temptation is always like, well, I'm not going to talk about Marxist themes. I'm not going to talk about like um like you, you swing too far away um by trying to avoid Marx and avoid Marxism. Um and you kind of wind up avoiding these whole fields of like power that genuinely you you kind of have to start with Marx if you're analyzing the modern world, you know, I'm sorry, you do. (laughs) And it seems like there's a real resistance to doing that, like on the part of Foucault, on the part of Arendt, on the part of Agamben, um, that like one thing that I document in my book is that he's trying to account for like the whole Western power structure. And so obviously he has to get back around to capitalism somehow. But it's such a roundabout path And, like, the way he finds to get himself into a position where he can finally say, no, capitalism is a bad thing, is just, like, this took too much work. You know, like, (laughs) what if you had, like, just not been so stridently anti-Marxist from the beginning? Wouldn't it have been more efficient? And maybe it would have been better integrated, too. You know, like getting back to my point of like when he started to talk about capitalism, the economy and other things other than like just the state broadly conceived, like it seemed as though he was struggling to hold it within the same like system.
1: Yeah, there seems to be because there's something to whether it's a rent or a gunman, um, you know, or, or others who, who kind of talk about. So if we're going back to Aristotle and we're going back to, you know, ancient Greece and and this separation of the economic, you know, the oikos, the household, uh, which was private, which was kind of the realm of necessity, which was, you know, you had um uh, it's pre-political in the sense that it was it was ruled um, by, by violence and kind of tyranny and so forth. Uh, and that was the prerequisite for having access to the polis for being in part of the political, the public sphere where, uh, you know, peers who were equal, uh, had freedom and could exercise freedom. That was, that was the realm of freedom. Um, and you had to have mere life right before you could have the possibility of pursuing the good life and so forth there. Look, there's something to the idea of course that, uh, Life for the sake of mere survival or necessity alone is not, you know, truly human and, and that there's, there's more to life than that, of course, like that we all realize that. But I think what so many theorists miss is that, like, whether it's in ancient Greece or other places, those who were free, they had the necessity taken care of by slaves or whoever, like, the, the, the question of, of mere life was dealt with, you know? And, and when we today live in a, in a country and in a world where, for so many people, mere life itself has to be political because it, it is a question and it is not taken care of, uh, where, where most people are, in fact, those who are serving, uh, the masters that, that get to be free, the rich, you know, the elites, um, to politicize the economic sphere, uh, is of course where, you know, where, where the kind of, fight for freedom has to occur for most people. And, and I don't understand, you know, there, there's, you, you teach a, a great books program, um, that all kinds of conservative people who love the, the classics, I love the classics, I, I love the great books, um, they have these very reactionary views where they're talking about, um, the good life, but they don't, I would say, well, hey, wouldn't it be great if everybody could pursue these, the, the great books and pursue the good life? Shouldn't we therefore make sure that we have universal healthcare and that everyone has necessity taken care of so that everyone could have the possibility of something more than mere life? For some reason, people don't talk about that problem. I don't know. What, what, what do you think about this, this use of history and this use of the separation of the spheres? Um, when we're living at a time where, where necessity is itself a question for most people is not, you know, a precondition for their lives.
2: Yeah, I think that that's one part of rent, You know, as brilliant as her stuff is, like, I spend an entire chapter in Neoliberalism's Demons basically saying this: this division of labor between the pol- the political and the economic just doesn't make sense. It's simply like it relies on a kind of romanticized vision of ancient Greece in the first place. Uh, which everybody knows and admits was based on, like, a social system that was reprehensible and that we shouldn't want to duplicate. And then we're supposed to say, like, this is still normative for us now? Like, that doesn't make sense. And also, like, what is politics supposed to be about at this point if it's not about the economic? You know, what what are we debating about? Um It just seems to become kind of a almost like a team sport, I guess, the analysis of like tribalism, as everybody loves to say now. Um, And I think that to a certain extent, it has become that, that in a way, Arendt has her um, wish in the stupid culture war politics (laughs) when both parties agree on the economics, Right. Then once they both agree on the economics and there's no longer like a desire to improve economic conditions in any meaningful way, then all you have is these um, stupid,
1: spiteful controversies. Um hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder that, you know, the, the point from Obama's kind of famous clip where he got in trouble for saying that um, Republicans cling to their Bibles and their guns. Um, the context of that was was a question about why do Republicans vote against their economic material interests? And he was kind of making the point that, well, when they have so little materially, they cling to their cultural, religious uh, you know, all they have left, basically, the meaning-making systems that they have, because that's what could be taken from them. Because th- there's not much more that could be taken from them materially. This was kind of the argument that he was making. And I wonder how stupid our culture wars would be if we didn't have the problem of material deprivation, uh, you know, the wages of whiteness that are compensating for actual lack of power and so forth. Like, I wonder if – a rents vision would be so bad if everyone had necessity met, right? Like that, that does seem to me to be a different kind of realm of freedom than the realm of freedom that simply, you know, puts to the side questions that are economic when people don't have the material needs met, right? Yeah. Now I'm thinking about, um, I don't know if
2: you've read Peter Fraze's book, Four Futures. Um, yeah, Yeah. I'm about to teach it actually. And He's talking about like the, the ideal communist society where all necessities are taken care of. And like there's Star Trek style replicators yeah. that you could just like walk yeah. up yeah. to and get whatever you want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he envisions that basically we'll find whole new horizons for how to be dicks to each other.
1: <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: Untold. <laughs>
1: oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Look, yeah. You know? Uh, our, our, our vision of abundance you know, is, is impoverished. It could apply, could apply to, to other things. Yeah, that's great. Well, maybe,
0: yeah. I mean, maybe somewhat less consequential, if I recall that book, you know, as compared to like, you are on the street starving. Mad um, Max, yeah. yeah. But <laughs> I want to I want to return to uh, a little bit, you know, you, you were talking about, you know, communism and how like continental philosophers struggled to respond to the Soviet Union and there were sort of trapped in a way that I think is actually kind of, uh, familiar. And you l- look at like how a lot of lefties are struggling to, to like formulate an opinion about this Ukraine stuff. Um, but I think there's also a thing, uh, an analogous situation that you could have, ap- uh, analysis that you could apply to the United States, um, with regards to like the new deal and, How a very self-confident sort of like statist, you know, like, like, um, you know, people who believed in government sort of had their faith shattered by Vietnam, um, You know, and how that basically, you know, it demonstrated the dark side of the state capacity. You know, it's like, here we have this like great bureaucracy and we're going to harness it to prosecute a completely insane, senseless, unjust war in Vietnam. Uh, you know, that like we can't even win. Um, and that, that seems like another thing, like maybe, you know, you, (laughs) you could probably speak to this better than me, but. Possibly like explains the popularity of like a government's perspective in the United States. How, you know, this this type of, uh, you know, the new left critique of state power and how like civil libertarianism, uh, the ACLU, uh, you know, that like that sort of stuff about like liberties from government oppression rather than demands on government to provide services to the people, you know, sort of like took top billing uh, among like like lefty you know, activists and academics, uh, for, for, you know, decades now. And it's like a a thing I think we're still kind of struggling with. Do you think that, um, you know, that sort of failure sort of tied in, maybe tied in possibly with like the Iraq stuff and Guantanamo Bay and whatnot?
2: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I think that in terms of the, um, the greater state competence and the idea that people like believed in the state and what the state can do. Like I, I really am attracted to that viewpoint. Um, and in, I was just recently reading, uh, Mike Consall's uh, book freedom from the market that was kind of yeah. detailing uh, like the, the new deal was like the real climax of the whole thing. Right. Obviously. And it seems like in every chapter he's like, but then racism destroyed this. <laughs> like it seems like that's kind of like yeah. this <laughs> repeated refrain. And I think that um, that's another area where the the dichotomy between kind of these economic rights and state rights, or like you know uh, freedoms versus you know government oppression, like that that race just throws this huge bomb into all of these discourses and this is an area where like a lot of Marxists are uncomfortable talking about too, because they want to say that race is kind of like a secondary, like it's a distraction. It's like, and and yes, in a certain way it is like, it is like a trick made up by the ruling classes to divide the working class, but it really does divide the working class. It works. Right. Right. It powerfully structures our society. It undermines all forms of solidarity in the U S like, and I mean, in uh, Melinda Cooper's book, Family Value, she documents how basically the fear of allowing black people into these welfare programs, which suddenly became identified as though it was only for them ever, when really they had been like excluded the whole time, like that becomes the drumbeat of how you destroy the welfare state, um, like, that's that's the, the blind spot i think in all of these debates about like the state versus capital or freedom versus like uh collectivity is like this curveball that is thrown in by race constantly especially in the united states so not only in the united states
1: yeah no no doubt i, I think our anti-capitalism has to be anti-racist um i, I mean really that kind of the fights against climate change, against racism, against capitalism, uh, against misogyny and sexism, against ableism, all these things make sense as having to be integrated in terms of um, the the fight for freedom, right? Um, but I think like... The state has to be a site of struggle. I guess is the point that you know to, to refer yeah. to Ryan's point that the state can either be the thing that cages you, or, or or that goes to war with you, or it could be what what provides you healthcare, or it, it makes sure that uh, there has to be wheelchair access in the building. Like the the fact that the New Deal uh, was compromised by racism. You know, our, our friend Dave Kybe talks about two different types of privilege, uh, the kinds of privilege that no one should have. Right. To, to dominate or to mansplain or whatever. And the types of privilege that everyone should have, but are, as it, as it stands, simply extended to certain privileged people. And like, the New Deal is something that everyone should have. And, and certain freedoms are things that are good for everyone. And we shouldn't, uh, be upset if the state provides them to some. We should be mad about the, the incompleteness and the, the lack of extension of, uh, freedom, right? And it just seems that, that these are the kinds of distinctions that, um, that Agama didn't make between different states of emergency and different uses of state power. Um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, any any final th- thoughts, uh, Adam, about, I mean, s- some things that we can learn from this whole thing, because this is a scholar whose work you would still probably say, right, is very valuable for, for what it can, um, what it can offer us to think about uh, constitutional liberal democracies today. Like, wh- where are you at now in your thinking? You have obviously a professional and personal kind of uh, stake in this. What is valuable that we should remember to help us think through p- political problems today um, from the work of Agamben, and and, and what is new in your thinking about maybe what we should um, think anew or or be a little uh, pre- cautious about uh, that that maybe we weren't before.
2: Yeah, I think that. Um- What's missing from him is is a kind of picture of what a, a positive exercise of power would be, and I know he would probably say, "No, of course I'm not a dorm room libertarian." What a horrible thing to say, or you know, but <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: without without some account of like, okay, what would the social structure have to be in order to actually like uphold life, not to just you know, denigrate it and right, cast right. it down and like make it more vulnerable. Like, it seems as though I think it's productive to like be as suspicious as possible. Like, that's a kind of like you make sure you make like extra special sure that you haven't decided that something is good before it really is good, right? But like, once you've done that, like, pass. <laughs> you then need to say, okay, I'm confident that I'm not going to prematurely say something is good, but can't something still be good, right? Like,
1: Yeah, Yeah, right. um,
2: right. And it just seems like he never really uh, gets there, and I guess um, one thinker can't be expected to do everything. Um, uh, I think this is where people who find his ideas interesting and helpful need to kind of fill in the gaps of what he's not willing or able to do.
1: Which is, in a way, learning from his method, which drew upon lots of different uh, sources and, and thinkers and time periods. So, if if we're going to uh, aspire to the good part of, of Agamben's legacy, maybe that means we don't just stop at Agamben, right? And and maybe we we read even more Katsuko, because maybe you are, you are you are the way, the truth, and and the uh, the life, sir. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think that when I
2: think of what the good version of Agamben would be, like I just look in the mirror,
1: right? <laughs> <laughs> I think we have an open for the episode right there. That's the <laughs> well. Thanks, it
0: does strike uh, <laughs> me that it wouldn't be that hard to have a sort of a Gambian uh, analysis of the pandemic in the way, particularly in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. the way in which, like, the whole sort of bureaucratic apparatus has been, you know, at the earliest possible moment. Like, like pushed into forcing people back into work so that like the whole profit accumulation system is not interrupted, you know, and like that sort of didn't work on its own terms. But like you sort of see the ideological levers clanking and like,
1: oh, yeah. The, the emergency is that the schools won't be open, right? The emergency is that people yeah. won't go back to work. There's a worker shortage, Stuff, you know? uh,
0: stuff the right? people back, take away their unemployment and stuff them this, back. The state Jimpole. just says,
1: oh, the pandemic is over, folks. Did you know? Yeah.
0: I mean, is yeah. that a plausible reading, would you say, of a kind of like, like the Agamben, like, uh, 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 you know, a uh, take on things, like just being, you know, th- this type of coercion?
2: Yeah, I think that that's that's a direction that i would want to take it um but i think that he doesn't have much room for this idea of like an indirect state coercion that removing state support can be a form of coercion that the state like uh, withdrawing can be a way of abandoning you too, not just like subjecting you to this right. violence
1: which is too bad because he has a lot of interesting, um, uh, nuanced writings about contradiction, right? And about like, the, the, he does something like that in other instances. Um, is it, I mean, I, I guess I already said last question, so I'm sorry, but uh, is the, the Foucauldian, um, emphasis on medicine you know, hospitals, uh factories, uh, schools are all like prisons and like the idea that like there's a kind of disciplining and a kind of control that's done through uh the professions and through expertise and so forth. Is that also something – because I think there is something to that, right? A deference for Fauci, for example, is a little ridiculous. You know, Fauci became a god for liberals and like, I don't even want to know what they're doing in the bedrooms with Fauci's poster on the wall or I don't know. In any case, I just made, I just made that up. That's not okay. real. Don't worry. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, but but this this kind of idealization of the expert, the expert, there's the guy, the Fauci. Um, but taken too far, right? There, there's the total kind of ignoring of real science and medicine uh, right so so like do do you think there's something we can learn from from maybe uh influence on agamben as, as it pertains to expertise and and um yeah i mean specifically with medicine but just generally worshiping science i suppose as something he thought was a problem
2: yeah i guess that um in terms of Foucault, like i think the that his book the birth of the clinic kind of on the on the the origins of modern medicine. Like it's one of the most memorable things I've ever read. Um, and kind of the insight of it can be based on like this, this dumb quote from house, the, the medical drama. Uh, at one point he's, you know, he, he says to his team, like, we don't treat patients, we treat diseases, you know, like that. It, it treats the patient as though they're already dead or something like that, that, that they're just like the site of this thing occurring. And, I think that we have to recognize that, that doctors and medical experts are specialists, right? If I'm talking to a student as a professor, as somebody who's given my entire life to teaching in academia, and they're asking me for advice about how to balance priorities, I'm always going to say, well, you should prioritize your classes. You should prioritize your mind. Like, that's the number one thing that you you need to make sure that you can do that, right? Like, that's, um, and I can tell you how to do that in the best possible way. But if you ask me for advice on any other topic, like, I'm just a guy, right? (laughs) And I think that some of what we see with, like, the I believe in science and all this kind of stuff, um, or even, I think, with Fauci's odd behavior in some cases. Um, like, I would actually, I've sometimes been mistaken for taking like a right-wing position because I'm very skeptical of Dr. Fauci and the kind of... He, he lied. Lied yeah. multiple times. <laughs> he At one point, That's he weird. was talking about herd immunity or like for, through vaccination. And he announced ahead of time that he was going to change his view on what the percentage was required based on circumstances. I'm like... If you're going to do that, do that, but don't like say ahead of time you're going to do it like and like I think that he thinks of himself as this weird like political genius or something because he's a medical expert, but he's not. You know, like I think that I think political leaders and institutional leaders and workers especially through their unions like the science doesn't just directly lay down a law for what we're supposed to do, right? We still have to assess our own risks and our own values for how to respond to it. Um, I mean, the problem in the U.S. has been that people have been too neglectful of those of that scientific knowledge. And so it's kind of like difficult to make that point in this context. But I think that there are like like the fetishization of Fauci or something like that, that there is this kind of not as bad but also bad instinct to kind of just defer like if only we had a benevolent medical dictator or something like that
1: right, right. Well, <laughs> well then we, there would be no politics which is what liberals really yes, want they would course, love yes. for there to be no <laughs> politics <laughs> yeah yeah uh, Great. Well well thanks, Adam. We we um, we're looking forward to your contributions to a positive vision of freedom and, and a world where politics is interesting and, and good and we've taken care of everyone's necessities. So I hope that's your next one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let us know how that goes. <laughs> and thanks for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having
0: me. Cheers.